This is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week, I'll be talking with leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. My guest this week is architect Tom Kligerman, co-founder of the firm Ike Kligerman Barkley. Over the past 30 years, Tom has won award after award, and his work, often on shingle-style homes, has been featured in countless publications, including a 26-year run on Architectural Digest's AD100 list. I spoke with Tom about the pros and cons of being known for a particular design style, how he experiments with client presentations, and how even prestigious architects land clients on Instagram. This podcast is sponsored by Sidedoor. Sidedoor offers brands and designers a simpler way to become more profitable. The technology is transformative. Through Sidedoor's easy-to-use curated collection tools, you'll have access to products from the top trade brands without having to worry about order minimums. And you'll put about 30% of each sale right in your pocket. Designers are tastemakers in their community and online. And your clients should buy directly from you, not generic e-commerce sites. Sidedoor makes this easy. Use Sidedoor's simple and transparent digital tool to create a collection and share it with your clients and on your website and social media. Request free access now at OnSideDoor.com. That's OnSideDoor.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Morin Giles. Founded in 1933 in Lynchburg, Virginia, Morin Giles is dedicated to designing and developing the most innovative and luxurious natural leathers for the high-end hospitality, aviation, automotive, and residential interior design industries. They also craft a collection of luxury leather bags and accessories as an additional avenue to showcase the inherent beauty and timeless appeal of their natural leathers. Visit morangiles.com slash leather to learn more about their collection of leathers and how they can help you with your next project. That's morangiles.com slash leather. And now, on with the show. So, Tom, you had this interesting childhood. You grew up in New Haven and New Mexico. You very narrowly avoided becoming both a doctor and a lawyer. But your career as an architect really begins at Columbia University. Let's start there. What brought you to New York City? So I had spent my junior year in France as an exchange student. I lived on the outskirts of Paris, actually right between halfway between Paris and Versailles, basically. And I got back to Albuquerque, and I thought, I need to be in, in a real you know, significant city. And the most significant city in America is, to me anyway, is New York City. So I applied to Columbia. I also, at that point, as I said, had sort of thought about becoming an architect or you know, majoring in architecture, and Columbia had both those things, architecture as an undergraduate major, and it was in New York. So I applied there, and I was lucky when I got there. It was a great balance because uh, the curriculum there, you have to study history, art history, music history, contemporary civilization, humanities. You had to read a lot of books. You read the, we read the Bible. We read the Iliad. So I got a really, I think, good education there, but I also got to major in architecture. And the major there was really historically based. There, there was some engineering, but really you were studying art and architectural history. So we really learned about architecture through architecture history. In fact, I had enough art 
history classes to minor in art history. The other thing that happened was I met Robert Stern there. He was my, he taught undergraduate, at that time he taught undergraduate design and he taught junior studio. So the first design studio you had was with you know, Mr. Stern at the time, <laughs> now now Bob to me, but at the time it was Mr. Stern. And he was my advisor and he, and he taught the first studio. And he was a pretty challenging professor, if I if I recall. He was an extremely challenging <laughs> professor. All I did all semester long was work on my work for Bob Stern. It was intense, and, and there was a course guide at Columbia that rated, among other things, rated the classes on, on difficulty. And the most difficult was a one. The easiest was a five. It was the only class on in the course guide that was rated negative two. It, it was it was impossible to finish. He was that working. difficult. He was a negative two on the difficulty. He was a negative two. He well, he was he was demanding, and I guess depending on who you were, he was difficult. He and I I got along with him pretty well right from the start, partly because he really challenged and in some cases some might say torture students. I just didn't put up with it. I just was not going to take his guff like you know taking a drawing you'd work for weeks on and taking a red grease pencil to it. I just told him to do not touch that drawing, Mister Stern. Do not touch it. And he had kind of a shocked look in his face. And we got along after that. So he, you feel like he came to respect you because you sort of stood up to him a little bit? And maybe that was it. <laughs> but he was challenging. He was, but it was an incredible class. And a lot of what I do today, I learned from that class as a junior in college. I was 20 or something like that. You know, research, thinking about history, you know, looking at great architecture as a, as a place to start design. You know, not to mention being on time with a, you know, with a deadline and trying to be creative. And, um, you know, I learned that at the age of 20 from, from Bob. And at, at the time, obviously you had, you had no idea that he would play such a, such a role in your, in your later life. Let's sort of jump forward, uh, to, to when, uh, you, you get out of school, right. And you're, you're in New York and you're, Having a hard time finding a, a job, if I recall. Yeah, that's right. I, I got out of school, out of graduate school in 1982, and there was a recession. I decided I did not want to work for Mr. Stern because I'd had him as a teacher. I was interested more in sort of modern architecture at the time. I'd had, I'd had Charlie, Charles Gwathme as a critic and John Haydick and some people like that. So uh, I got to New York with my portfolio, and nobody was hiring. Charlie Gwathme, who'd offered me a job, said he had no work. I spent about three weeks pounding, literally pounding the pavement and sending letters out. Nothing came was coming through, and I was wandering up Columbus Circle one night, feeling somewhat dejected, and I suddenly heard this voice, Mr. Kligerman, what are you doing here? And I looked over, and it was, it was Bob Stern sitting in an outdoor cafe with Suzanne Stevens, uh, who you know writes for uh, Architectural Record and I think she was a progressive architect at the time. Right. And I said, oh, hi. And he said, when are you coming to see me? I said, well, I was planning to come by tomorrow, which wasn't true. And he said, <laughs> come by. So at 9 o'clock, I showed up. And at 9.30, he hired me. And I was at work the next day for $6.50 an hour. $6.50 an hour. That was the that was the starting wage. So this was 1982, if I this recall? Was, this was September of 82. Okay. So... Big new salary, six fifty an hour. How were you going to live in in New York? <laughs> After I paid my rent, I had four hundred and fifty dollars to make it through the month, and that paid yeah. for food and clothes and everything I did. I don't know how I did it, <laughs> but I survived. He was a pretty challenging professor. I, I know he he was 
rigorous to, to use your word uh, as a as a boss as as well tell me tell me about that he he was you know the great thing was that the very first day i sat down at my desk he gave me a project to design i had i had an architect over me but basically i was given a project to design additions to a dining hall at the university of virginia bob did a vague sketch about what he wanted and so i started drafting Using the classical orders, I'd never done that before. So I got out, you know, I was given a copy of the American Vignola. Uh, it was amazing to, to my first day of, of work to actually be designing something. So he was very generous in that way. And it was really kind of a, uh, on the one hand, it was very generous. On the other hand, it was a bit of a sink or swim. You had to, you had to just do a good job. You had to learn everything as you went along. There, no one was really holding your hands. So it was tough, but it was great. I mean, I, I worked nonstop. I it was always in before he showed up by at least 15 minutes and I would stay till he left. And I would sometimes stay until two in the morning to get things done. But it was a, a huge learning experience. Incredible. And when did you end up meeting John Ike and when did the two of you sort of really become co-conspirators? John was in the office already. He had been working for Stern for probably two years or so when I got there. He and I knew each other vaguely from Columbia. I was an undergraduate there. He was a graduate student there. And he and I ended up working uh, together on a, on a house in New Jersey and then later on in an office building in Southern California. So we did work together. We also had our own projects. So we would travel together. I remember one time flying out to California for a meeting with a client. Um, this is back before cash machines and stuff like that. We got out there. Between the two of us, we had $7 in cash. Um, that was our typical kind of adventure, but we actually had, we actually somehow we made it through, but we had, you know, significant serious meetings with clients and stuff like that. And we had a lot of freedom to design. It was, you know, that was a, working. There was a great experience. I mean, it must be, I'm talking about it 30 something years later. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it, it's hard to imagine it, it not really shaping your ideas about a great, great many things. I know that sometimes Bob Stern could sort of leave you, as you were saying, sort of leave you to your to your own. I remember you once telling me about sort of an early project where, if I recall, that the house was sort of sinking or something, and, and Bob sort of left it to you. <laughs> that was another project I started when, at the same time as designing the designing the dining hall, I got an amazing project renovating a uh, a carriage house designed by Carrera and Hastings. I think it was their first major commission, and. I went down for one of my first site visits and the, the building was literally tipping over and I panicked and I got on, you know, I went to a restaurant and I got on a payphone and called collect and the receptionist, I said, is Bob there? And then she said, what is, who, you know, what do you want? You want to talk? And I said, yes. She goes, okay. And suddenly <laughs> click. There was Bob. He goes, what do you want? I have a train to catch. I said, Bob, the house in, in New Jersey is, is falling over. I'm not sure what to do. And he says, trial by fire click and he was gone i guess that's what i mean it just hangs he, up he, it, <laughs> he completely hung up he was on the phone for all of 15 seconds and yeah. i figured out what to do and the house never fell over but uh, <laughs> that's that was the way we learned in the old days but that was how he was and did you say to yourself at the time that boy i'm i'm going to emulate this style when i when i get my firm one day no, I think my re reaction was I was a little embarrassed when I thought about it. I figured I can, you know, I thought to myself, I can figure this out. You know, I just probably need a little bit of a kick. 
Mm. I don't think I'm that much that way in the office. There were, you know, things I didn't like about working there. Sometimes it could be rough like that. And I thought this is, you know, you, you can get, you can do beautiful work and be a little less rough. And there are times when I think, I hope my, my staff may be listening to this podcast that I should just <laughs> be more that way. Stop. Mm. I don't want to, I don't want to answer questions about this. Figure it out. You know? Yeah. I should probably take, take a page from Bob's book. <laughs> so take me back for a moment. Tell me when you and, and John Ike decide, hey, let's go start our own firm. Let's, let, let's get out of here. Tell me just briefly sort of the, the early days of, of that partnership. Well, in the early days in 1989, we were in, a, in the McGraw-Hill building um, at 40, 42nd and 8th. And we were there until six months ago. <laughs> uh, we never left that office, yeah. but when we started, we rented. We were renting four or five desks from ID Magazine was in there, and we rented desks from Jim Fulton, who was the editor of ID. Hmm. And then little by little, as we grew, we took on more and more and more space. And eventually, um, that magazine left or folded, and we ended up taking on the lease. But you know, we started, and we were doing little projects. We were doing. We did have a couple houses and things like that. Um, but it was, you know, it's scary starting a firm, particularly that was in 1989. I remember this, the Christmas, Christmas of 1992 was very slim. I think Christmas mm. of, of 1992, we had $40,000 in the bank and we had, you know, at that time, five or six people working for us that wouldn't even cover payroll. So I spent a very nervous Christmas, but somehow the money came in, somehow we paid payroll. And, um, you know, one of the early lessons of business is that the economy is cyclical. And that was kind of a valley, and it came back, and it, and and that continues. It goes up and down, but it's scary when it's your first downturn. Well, and and ninety two was was a, a much more serious recession than we look back on now. It was a lot of manufacturing went overseas during that time, and it was no, it was scary. And I think you know one of the things is we we're lucky to have a clientele that no one's recession proof. Everyone mm -hmm. is nervous in a recession. It doesn't matter how much money you have, but we are lucky to have a clientele that is somewhat recession-proof, and I think that's what pulled us through. I think if we'd been in, there could have been a lot of the, a lot of other areas of architecture we might have been doing that would have, where it would have been a rougher road to hoe, but uh, it worked out. How were you presenting yourselves at the time? I know you've you've become known for this shingle-style home look, which which we'll talk about the evolution of that in a moment. But how were you describing and and presenting yourselves in the in the early days of like Kligerman. It's interesting because in the early days we were we we were known through our the clients we had met at Stern's office. Mm. It did not steal any jobs, but a couple of our <laughs> clients did come with us or had friends who hired us. And so we I think we were probably really attached to Robert Stern at the time. And it's something we consciously tried to push away from. But as you can see, thirty four years later, we're still talking about Bob Stern. <laughs> So I think I think we were known because we were offshoots of that of that company, and I think that's changed now. I think we have a look that's slightly different from what other firms are doing. But early on, that's I think that's how we that's how we got to be known. We're taking a quick break to remind designers about Morin Giles Leather, the world's leading leather developer. Morin Giles is dedicated to designing the most innovative and luxurious natural leathers for the high-end hospitality, aviation, automotive, and residential interior design industries. 
They also craft a collection of luxury leather bags and accessories as an additional avenue to showcase the inherent beauty and timeless appeal of their natural leathers. Visit morangiles.com leather to learn more about their collection of leathers and how they can help with your next project. That's morangiles.com leather. Was there a particular reason why you ended up landing so many of these, as you described, these sort of res- somewhat recession-proof clients? You, you've had a lot of high-profile clients over the years, some of which we probably can't even name on this show. <laughs> but but yeah. you've had a lot of, you've, you've, right? You've had a lot of big names. And what do you think drew people to you in, the, in that way? You know, I don't know. Maybe... Maybe they had seen some some of our work. You know, we did. We were very lucky. We did a house in uh, in New Jersey that was picked up by Architectural Digest in 1992. So, right around the time of that recession, we had a, a our first house in Digest, and that brought some work. And you know, I think you know, once you know, you get into a magazine like that, you may not get a call immediately, but it is mm. extraordinary who sees those those kinds of magazines. So um, that was a huge help. You know, being in the magazine doesn't mean you'll get work, but it does lend you a certain amount of credibility. People think if you're in a magazine, you, you know, you're saying something. So um, that started happening. And the other thing is about business is just doing what you say you're going to do. It's the old adage, you know, 95% of success is showing up mm. on time, something like that. And it's just true. If you just answer the phone and call people back and show up at nine o'clock when it's a nine o'clock meeting and also try and just to be nice guys to work with. <laughs> and we treat it, you know, we try and treat everybody that way, whether it's uh, not just the client, but, you know, the builder, the tile setter, the the guy digging the foundations. Um, so I think that's, we try to um, try to engender that, that sort of culture in the office. Respect. You mentioned getting published in Architectural Digest in, in, in 1992, and it sort of was the beginning of what, of what would be a remarkable relationship with you and, and Paige Rents, the longtime editor and, and chief at Architectural Digest, who really, over time, would, would come to publish you with great regularity, almost as though you had a, a sort of an agreement that you'd be published X amount of, of times a, a year. And, and, and it really, I mean, for so many years, you were in the, I can't remember your, your, your streak. Was it, was it 26 times in a row or something on the, on the AD 100? Yeah, we were in it uh, for 26 years straight from 1995 until, till just this year. So we were lucky and, and, you know, Paige was, she was, I think an incredible editor. She was a a wonderful personality, but you know, she was tough. Um, You knew what the rules were. Basically you're in my magazine that's it. I think she gave leeway to some of the real you know, superstars. We were not by any means superstars, but for the most part, if you were in uh, in the AD 100, the agreement mm. with her was that's where you would be published. Occasionally, we'd be published somewhere else, and we would always call her up and say, Paige, I don't want you, you to be surprised, but you know, <laughs> the Seattle Times is going to do this little article, and they want to mention us, and she was very appreciative. Right. But I absolutely owe a lot to to her in that magazine. It, it, not just not just Paige, but the the following editors also. You know, Peggy Russell and sure. Amy Astley, also very generous uh, to us. Did you do something wrong this year, Tom? Did something happen? Did, did was there a well? I don't know. A you, free song. <laughs> there was a free song that we. I don't, I don't know what it was, but we are no longer on that list. But um, 
we had a pretty good run, and maybe maybe they'll let us back in at some point. Do you feel that that some young upstart firm took your place? I mean, is is, is it that kind of a thing? Is it? Uh... I'm sure. I mean, they they certainly let in. I mean, it's an incredible list of people, and there's uh, there are a yeah. lot of new talents uh, in the magazine. I think their focus also shifted a little bit. You know, I, I think being in the magazine world is is we all know it's very tough right now. And yeah. so I think there's been a been a move to a different kind of article. There's a little bit more about uh, celebrity in, in the magazine now, I think, than there was when we were doing it. We have, as you mentioned before, we have a lot of sort of celebrity clients mm. whose names you know or might not know. You might know their products. Um, we don't have clients who will allow their names to be in the magazine. So that may be part of it. It's just changing. We talked earlier a little bit. You became very known for this shingle style home and this certain look. And I sense that you've been trying to sort of not break away from that, but that that sometimes that can that can put you in a in a box that you're that you want to get out of a little bit. It sounds like. Yeah, it's a two, it's double edged sword. You know, when we first published that uh, dark green house in New Jersey. John and I talked about it. You know, it got such, uh, we were recognized so quickly for it. And then we said, you know, I said, John, you know, we can really, we can make a career out of this. Like, there's a lot to mine here. And ultimately, we decided there's so many styles of architecture we're interested in. You know, some interpretation of Georgian or modern or Victorian. There's all kinds of things. And we thought, you know, it's just too limited to do that one thing. But the more I work, the more I've been interested in sort of narrowing my focus. That doesn't mean we don't want to do all kinds of other buildings. And I do worry sometimes that, you know, that the narrow focus is limiting. But it also allows you to really concentrate on different ideas if you if you do limit your palette a little bit. I do worry sometimes that people only think of us as shingle-style architects. We do a lot of other kinds of work. But that's sort of the vein we've been mining mostly. You know, it's one of those things you do you do one and you get another one and, they, and now there's two and then all of a sudden there's three. It's like a little rabbits multiplying. <laughs> um, but we do do a range of different kinds of buildings. Well, and it sounds as if you've been giving a great deal of thought lately and, and talking with your team about how even your approach to the work has evolved and shifted perhaps and, and where your thoughts are taking you today. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. Well, Having grown up in New England and then moving to Albuquerque, New Mexico when I was 14 exposed me to not only East Coast architecture, but also architecture of the American Southwest. And, you know, the American shingle style is in a very American style. The architecture of the, of the American Southwest is very, it's totally American. I mean, the, the Americans who were there were there long before Columbus was running around. So, and I love both those styles of architecture. And I've been trying to figure out a way to kind of join them together to create another American style, maybe, or a, a style that really borrows from both. And so I've become interested, and we've been working a lot in the, in the office lately on architecture as sort of as sculpture, trying to you know create a house that isn't bizarre looking, but borrows on the sort of massive architecture of the, of the Southwest with the sort of wood frame construction of shingle style houses. And ironically, we've kind of resolved that through almost an origami, a sort of Japanese approach to sort of folded planes of wood and shingle to create these sort of carved, voluminous um, houses. And that's what we've been working a lot on. Are your clients taking you to, to, to very different places today as a result of everyone sort of moving around and, and relocating? 
Well, there's more work. I mean, people, I, I think across the industry, it's a very busy time. Um, so we're lucky that we're taking advantage of this sort of, I don't know if it's a flight from the city, but there's mm. been a lot of, a lot of, um, there's a lot of new houses we're doing and renovations of houses. And interestingly, you know, people have come to us now because I guess they've seen what we've been doing. And, you know, it's, it's sort of the chicken or the egg. You, you know, we are, you know, we started doing these houses and people come to us. We get to do more of them. But people have come to us and they say, you know, we saw this kind of cool house, these great chimneys and these cool, and they've hired us. And in, in some cases, um, pushed us to do more than we might otherwise might have. You know, they've sort of pushed us to be even bolder than we, we, we might have on our own. Well, so how so? Tell me, tell me how they would, how they would push you in a, in a direction you might not go in. Well, we're doing a house right now in Dallas, Texas, and uh, they hired us because of some of these sort of newer, more origami-type structures we've been working on. And when we first presented it, the, I remember the wife saying, this is cool, but where are those blade chimneys? Or not? And I said, well, here's one in front. Here's one right here in the front of the house. She goes, you know, I want more. I want more. I, we love the sort of, you know, the way these look. And so I was like, okay. And... um it's great to have a partner like that. Hello, listeners. Dennis Scully here. I'm excited to announce that my favorite event of the year is back. Business of Homes Future of Home Conference is taking place in person this fall, September 13th and 14th. It will be two days of lively discussions with leaders of the industry about how businesses can turn high demand into meaningful growth how the pandemic has shifted consumer behavior and psychology, and how we can continue to inspire our clients and inspire ourselves. I'll be hosting, and I promise it's going to be great fun. Get your tickets now at futureofhome.com. And of course, a special thank you to our sponsors, the Crate and Barrel CB2 Trade Program, High Point Market Authority, Benjamin Moore, Hunter Douglas, Mitchell Gold and Bob Williams, Afterpay, Pinterest, Kohler, Callista, Ann Sachs, Roburn, Universal Furniture, Krypton, and EQ3. I can't wait to see you there. Well, interestingly, I mean, interior designers often talk to us about the challenges of keeping that client engaged, keeping that client satisfied, managing the money being spent. Tell me how that process is for you and, and how you've managed that over the years. Well, you know, one of the things that you have to do as an architect is you have to, a lot of our clients have never built a house before. So in addition to doing your job, you have to explain to them what you're doing. This is what we're going to do first, and then we'll do this, and we'll get to that. And, you know, you Yes, we'll be talking about the wood floors, but not right now. Um, although, if you have a particular like, good to know it early on. It really does affect how we think about things. So there's a lot of just leading them through the process. And part of what you, I think you have to do is you have to make it fun. Part of the design process is keeping it interesting. And I, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's entertainment, but there is a component to what you're doing that, that keeps it fun because it is long. I tell all the clients who come in, you know, pick somebody you like. You're going to be with them. You know, everything else being equal, pick the pick the person you like to work with because it's a long process. Wasn't there a client at one time that you were trying to create a custom scent for for the for the house? Do I do I remember that? Yeah, we that was that was yes. I guess maybe that falls into entertainment. But I, I <laughs> does I, that make it fun? I, 
<laughs> well, no, it, it made it fun, but it, it's actually a little more serious than that. I, I, I think everyone talks about the way a house looks, right? Hmm. Uh, that's what we do. We're visual. But it occurs to me that a lot of things that people like are much more subliminal than that. For example, hmm. you know, we all grew up in a house. I think if somewhere, if you could recreate the scent of the stair hall in your house, it would conjure up images. You know, everyone, or the sound of your sibling running up the back stairs. You know, I think people, if they thought about it, could recall a lot of that. I certainly could recall sounds, but the but the scent of a house, you know, the smell of white oak or cedar or paint, all those things, or maybe of the landscape, you know, uh, being on the ocean or in the woods, and those things are very powerful. You know, scent is the most powerful sense that we have. So I thought, you know, we were in a competition to get, get a house on a lake in Connecticut, and I hired someone in California to create the scent of a woodland setting on a lake and before the meeting i released the scent in the room and i also had recorded the site so I, you could hear the birds and the water and stuff like that and i had very softly playing the, playing in the background the actual sounds from their property it was almost inaudible but it was there and we did the presentation and it went it went really well. In fact, we did get the job. I don't know if it was a design or what, but I th- I can't help but think some of this didn't help. They didn't notice the scent. I was a little bit, or they didn't say anything about it. I was a little bit worried that they thought maybe one of us had some kind of musky cologne on. <laughs> <laughs> but at some point, the husband said, "Do you hear birds?" And, and so I had to confess that I'd recorded their site. And he did said to me, God, I love a little drama. This is incredible. Yes. And I didn't mean for it to be dramatic. I meant for it to be you know, sort of to, for them to, you know, fall in love with this house almost in spite of themselves because these other sensory things were being triggered. Absolutely. And you mentioned earlier that so often you are helping someone to go through this process for the very first time. Most people haven't built their own house before, right? Before they come to you. Right. What do you find is most surprising to people about the process of building their own home? Or what do you find you, you sometimes have to spend the most time sort of taking people through? You know, it's like anything, probably managing expectations. I think people are surprised how long projects can take sometimes. You know, sometimes they go very quickly. Sometimes you show someone a drawing and then you draw it and you build it. And it's amazing to look back at houses that are completed and you look at the first drawing and go, my God, we actually built this exactly this way. But even in those cases, you know, it's months of work and and so you're always having to explain kind of what's next. When you're building a house, you get to a point where, you know, it's just, you know, you're standing on a platform and there's no walls yet and that's what they understand. And then they come back the next time and there's suddenly walls are up and they look at the rooms and go, these, walls are, these rooms are tiny. And you have to explain to them, they look small right now because... There's no furniture in them. There's no there's no doorknobs. You you really have no sense of how to gauge the size and scale of them. And then they sort of fall. They sort of like the house that way. And next thing you know, there's sheetrock on the walls. You go, Whoa! The the house the room looks giant again or looks small again. So you're <laughs> you're constantly and 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 people will often want to make changes based on things they're seeing before the house is really ready. I find myself having to convince them not to knock down some wall to make the room bigger to wait be patient and they'll see that it'll all come together and and then the 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 house three four years later it 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 it, it's built and tell me how how you came to to partner with so many interior designers of of note over the years we've been really lucky i think 
maybe they see something in the houses they like. I, I don't know. But but a lot of our work, I, I think most of our work comes from interior designers, from interior designers and from contractors. Tell me what you mean when you say most of your work comes from interior designers. Well, you mean- we get, we'll get a call from an interior designer and they'll say, hey, we have a client who wants to do a house or a builder that we have worked with who calls up and said, I have a client, we were showing them some of the houses we built and we showed them the one you did and they like it. So hmm. they come they come to us that way. And we try and reciprocate. You know, we are constantly being asked for interior designers or builders and we and we give them the names of the ones that we think are appropriate for that kind of project. But it's really through colleagues that most of our work comes, colleagues and, and builders and stuff like that. Any stories you want to tell me about working with some some great designers? Any interesting projects come to mind? Yeah, we're working on an incredible house. I, I, I'm afraid if I start naming people, someone will feel left out of that. No. <laughs> but no, no. You know, we were working recently with Jacques Grange, who was you know someone you always hear about, just an incredible uh, character and uh, just with an amazing vision. We're doing a big house in uh, Canada with Kelly Wurstler who um, has a very unique way of looking at things and thinking about things. You know, one of the great things about working with all these interior designers is that they see the world slightly differently from me. You know, just just finishing a project with Stephen Gambrell on Martha's Vineyard. Mm. I love working with people uh, like that because they see it differently. And if you really collaborate, you learn a ton. And it, it makes you do things you wouldn't otherwise do if left to your own devices. You know, Coleman and Kravis or um, Alexa Hampton, all of them have uh, Victoria Hagen, a perspective. I learn from every single one of them. Hopefully they learn from me. But it really is in that sort of chemistry of working with someone that you do things you would not have done otherwise that, that I find really exciting. Well, I mean, you mentioned somebody like Stephen Gambrell, for example, who often wants to take things in a very dramatic direction, right? He wants giant lacquered doors and elaborate hardware and right and sort of these spectacular pieces in his in his project. Yeah, this project we just finished, we basically saw eye to eye and everything and, and Stephen is great with clients. You know, he's very he's great in meetings. He he doesn't cram things down people's throats. He has a, definitely has a vision. Mm. We worked, you know, I think really well together. The things he wanted to see in the project were exactly the same things we wanted to see in terms of the wood and the timber and the things like that that are in this project, the paneling, the glass. We basically had the same images in our minds. And Kelly Wurstler, where does, where does she tend to want to take you on projects? You know, she comes from a, a completely different place for me in terms of really strong imagery that isn't, you know, that is less historically based than, than I am. Mm. She spends a lot of time finding, you know, art, or simply images of cool things, not necessarily even buildings, sometimes um, a chair or a piece of sculpture or a painting or just a great material. And that drives her. She was not trained as an architect. You know, Stephen, I think, was. Stephen Gambrell was. So mm-hmm. he has a much more kind of architectural way of thinking, thinking about things. I think Kelly is more painterly. And, you know, doing things we've never done before, combinations of marble, combinations of metals and materials and tile that I'd never thought of. So the house with, with Kelly in Canada is is more colorful than we would have we would have done otherwise. But, you know, not just paint, you know, 
colorful marbles put together in really kind of amazing ways, different finishes of metal, different kinds of some beautiful tile work. It's been great. She has a great office and great to work with. And, and I'm sure it'll be, I'm sure it'll be a spectacular project. Don't know if it'll get published. Don't know if it's allowed to be published, but I guess we'll I see. I hope so. We'll see. I hope so. Certainly try and put it in a book if we can't put it in a magazine. Well, and, and that's what I was going to ask. So a lot of times clients will say yes there, right? Which is another reason to go down the book path versus getting it published in a magazine, right? Yeah, there's a, there's a big difference. You know, a book, at least from my experience, we will sell maybe 5,000 of them. Whereas, mm. you know, some of the magazines have a readership, you have a you know, circulation of a million or something, and then a readership, or I, I'm not sure what the difference is exactly, but, you know, 4 million people may see a magazine article in theory or 2 million, some huge number. You know, I, I think some clients are more willing to sign on to the book because it's a much more focused group than um, than a magazine that, that is in every airport or every magazine stand. So um, some of the things that we have projects in our books that would not uh, that would not be in a magazine. And are and are books important to you as a as a tool as a client development tool or as a milestone of work? I mean, I, I think books are enormously important. For one, just from a client perspective, you know, if, if everything being equal, if a client leaves your office with your book and they've interviewed someone else who doesn't have a book. That's mm-hmm. a real difference. There's, there's there's a certain amount of profundity that comes with a book. But the, but I think more importantly, or as importantly, is when you do a book, it's really a, a, a chance to pause and to look at across everything you've done over the last few years and to see it as an outsider because you hand the projects to a graphic designer and you talk to a writer and they present your work back to you. And in a way you be, you sort of become that you see it through a client's eyes or you see it from the outside. And um, I find that very helpful. We're working on actually working on our third book right now. I would be remiss if we didn't talk about you yourself have a, have a book. So it's, it's not out quite yet, but you can pre-order it. Um, it's called as I see it, a life in detours. And it is just my photography. And in fact, the publisher contacted me because he liked my Instagram account. So a lot of the photographs are my Instagram photographs and it's set up almost like a, a paper version of Instagram. And um, the book is set up where it, it compares two images to each other. So there could be, you know, a mountain in Iceland compared to a hill in Italy or something like that. So it's almost like a conversation between images and it's a travel book. You can pre-order it on Amazon. If you want. There you go. You can pre-order on Amazon right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good plug. We're taking a quick break to remind you about a transformative new sales tool called SideDoor. First, it's free for qualifying designers and trade brands. Second, instead of settling for the 1% to 3% offered by affiliate programs, you have access to your favorite trade brands and you earn on average 30% of each sale. Finally, instead of sending people to other sites and places to spend their money, SideDoor gives you a way to have clients check out directly from you. Best of all, you don't have to deal with any of the fulfillment. The SideDoor team places the order, coordinates the freight, and handles the customer service. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. SideDoor is a groundbreaking online tool that follows the best practices of our industry and helps designers become more profitable. Request free access at onsidedoor.com. That's 
onsidedoor.com. And now, back to the show. So I'm curious, Tom, thinking about the, so this is a business show, thinking about the business and, and sort of how it's, how it's changed over the years, what's, what's meaningfully changed for you and, and how you do business and, and how you, how you think about even the business side of, of what you do over the years? Well, I think most people would say the speed at which communication happens has really changed. I, I can't understand how we built the houses we did when you had to mail a letter because we started working, I started working before there was a fax machine. Mm. Now, everyone is instantly available by text. So things have sped up that way. I think uh, clients have a, a, a higher expectation for presentations, you know, that we can do not only, we do a lot of watercolors in our office, but we also do photorealist mm. renderings. So there's an, a much, much greater expectation for what things will look like sooner. Um, options, you know, we did a house in Southampton where we, we were able to show the clients five different color schemes. It's a shingle style house, but here's, here's natural shingle shingles. Here it is red stain, green stain, blue stain, black stain. You know, those kinds of things took a long time to do before. So the communication is faster. Ex- expectations of options and visualization is much higher. But I think, I think the common thing is, or what's become more and more important to me is just how you communicate those things to the, to the world beyond your clients. And, you know, magazines, um, although there aren't as many as there were a few years ago, except for Business of Home is, has amazingly launched a magazine in this in a <laughs> world where magazines seem to be shrinking. It's just an ama- it's amazing to me, a testament to how well you guys are doing. Um, you know, self-promotion, you, you really, the other thing has changed. You have to really promote yourself. That's one of the reasons I have Instagram and I try and post every day because that's how, you know, you have to develop business that way and we do. I've gotten three su- substantial projects out of my Instagram. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, uh, we just photographed a house of 22,000 square feet. Then they called me because they liked my Instagram. So I, I take it very seriously. It's fun, but it's also very serious. Well, and, and you mentioned just then about the watercolors that you do, which are so, so beautiful. And I, and I'm sure so, so personal for the, for the clients that you, that you work with and, and, and the models that you often make. And I love that that hasn't gone away with all of the technological tools that are available to you. Yes. Well, the watercolors, we start off our projects with with hand drawings, hand perspective, watercolors, because you don't want to limit a client's or anyone's thinking too early in the project. If you show a hand sketch, a mistake in the drawing or a blip in what you're doing, or they're thinking that what you're showing is shingle is actually brick, you know, those kind of funny misunderstandings or different interpretations of a drawing are really helpful. Hmm. If you show someone a house too soon that is too set and it looks like a photograph, it really stops the conversation too early. Eventually, you want to show people what they're really going to get. And what, what I, I like to say to clients is there are going to be surprises in the building, but I want to eliminate everything so that the surprises are good ones. I don't want you surprised that the brick is this color. I don't want you surprised that the room looks like this. I do want you to have the surprise of walking and think it's even better than I thought. So the technology has allowed us to really explain to people what what they're really going to get, but it can come if if used too early at the expense of using your imagination. 
you know, we have a 3D printer, which enables you to really make models. And we build models all the time now, where we used to build models probably uh, in one quarter of the houses we did. Now we do them for pretty much every house we do. And we don't just build models of the house. We put in the landscape or we'll, we'll build a model of the moldings or of a door or, or we can do a room or a fireplace or, you know, literally a custom faucet. Hmm. So that's all because of technology and our model building has gone through the roof. So as, as we sort of wrap up our conversation, I mean, you don't really think about retiring and, and, and in many ways you sort of feel like you're, you're only just getting to some of your best work or maybe your clearest thinking about the work. I mean, tell me, tell me where you are in your head. I have no desire to retire. My father worked until three months before he died. It's kind of a maybe a depressing thing to say, but he, you know, if you love what you do, the idea of retirement is just, I, I can't imagine, what would I do with myself? I mean, I know I would paint, I would travel, I would probably love it. I'd eat uh, <laughs> more than I eat now already. But I I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm just at the beginning of my career. I feel like, I feel like I'm having ideas I never had before. So I feel incredibly energized and yeah probably too strong a thing to say i have regrets like why didn't i think of this earlier but sometimes i think why didn't i try this earlier the thing i wrestle with now is being bolder being more experimental maybe because i'm later in my career i feel like i have less time to do things so i think i think i'm taking more risks than before but I feel like the office is on the verge of, of doing some really interesting stuff that we haven't done before Maybe that hasn't been seen before. So really? I feel, well, I think so. And again, not in a Frank Gehry way or Palladio mm. or some one of these really, <laughs> you know, I, I don't expect that out of us necessarily. I, I hope maybe I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. But I think, you know, that I want the office to really continue to evolve. And as I said before, I want us to feel a little scared, uh, a little bit like not everybody's going to like it but want to have the feeling that it'll make some significant contribution that maybe maybe we'll do things that other people will copy or find influential. So that's what that's what drives me. Tom, thank you so much for for taking the time to to talk with us. I I've really enjoyed it. Well, thank you Dennis. It's always fun talking to you. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to keep up with the latest design industry news, visit us online at businessofhome.com where you can sign up for our newsletter, browse job listings, and join our BOH Insider community for access to online workshops, a free print subscription, and much more. If you have a note for the podcast, drop us a line at podcast at businessofhome.com. If you're enjoying these conversations, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others to discover the show. This show was produced by Fred Nicolaus and Caroline Burke and edited by Michael Castaneda. I'm Dennis Scully. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week.